My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. The stories coming out of Canada's healthcare system are shocking. Hospitals shuttering their emergency wards all over the country, elderly patients waiting for beds in hospital hallways for days, emergency wait times leading to catastrophic outcomes for patients. This is not what Tommy Douglas, the father of Medicare, envisioned for Canada back in 1965. Yet, here we are. Earlier this week, premiers from 13 provinces and territories came together to discuss the most pressing concerns in this country at the Council of the Federation meeting. Our struggling healthcare system was on the top of the list. The premiers are turning to the federal government for more funding for provinces as the country stares down another COVID wave, more staffing issues, and a system that is collapsing in on itself. But is throwing money at the issue going to be enough? According to today's guests, the system needs a fundamental rethink. There's need for less talk and more solutions-based action, and it needs to happen now. I'm Garby Bailey. This is The Big Story. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association and a pediatrician. She was in Victoria for the Council of the Federation meeting. We reached her in Vancouver, BC, right after the meetings wrapped up. Dr. Smart, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and it's great to have you here to uh, to, to sort of dig into what happened uh, this week. You were at the Council of Federation meeting in Victoria, uh, the premiers from 13 provinces and territories all there. And what was this meeting meant to accomplish? Well, I think, you know, they were coming together to discuss priority issues across the country. And I think, as expected, healthcare really was one of the dominant conversations. Of course, they were talking about other things as well. Um, But I think it was pretty clear that the premiers are understanding the crisis that the healthcare system's in. You know, you could tell that they've been hearing from their constituents. In fact, several people were protesting outside the hotel uh, about the healthcare system in Victoria. Um, So I I think they're they're getting the message from Canadians that things are not okay. Um, And I think they know that there's a lot of work to be done to get things back on track. Absolutely. We, you know, the way that we're, we were seeing it played out in media is premiers on one side and then the federal government on the other. Is that an accurate uh, portrayal of, of how it felt uh, there? Well, I, I wasn't, of course, privy to their actual discussions. I mm. did have the chance to join a breakfast with the premiers and I had a chance to talk to several of them individually and address them. Um, and I think, you know, what you're hearing, their frustration, I think, is probably the frustration many of us are feeling in that we've heard the federal government say a lot of the right things, right? They've, they've acknowledged there's challenges in the healthcare system. In the last election, there was many promises about what they were going to do to try to help with the healthcare system. But we haven't actually seen really any deliverables. You know, we've seen the $2 billion 
commitment for backlogs. But aside from that, the other things, there hasn't been much action. So I think, you know, in the final press conference, you were definitely getting the feeling from the premiers that they're not seeing the level of cooperation that they're hoping for from the federal government. And they really want the the federal government to come to the table. Um, and that's what we'd like to see as well. You know, our our view is is that this is a problem that's beyond any individual jurisdiction's ability to solve. You know, it's the healthcare system is really truly collapsing in many parts of our country, and the provinces, of course, have a role to play in, in getting things back on track. But so do the feds, and and I think the premiers want to have those conversations. They want to come to the table, and they want to have robust discussions. And I think the the frustration is coming from the fact that that has yet to happen. Right. Is Canada's healthcare system currently failing to meet the needs of Canadians? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. And it's not just in one sector, it's across all sectors. You know, starting with the front door of healthcare, primary care, huge crisis. Every province, every territory has issues with recruiting and retaining family doctors. Mm. You know, and this this is a, not a new problem, but I think what's different, right? If several years ago, this was an issue often in rural parts of the country. It'd be hard to recruit and retain someone to a rural area. Now we're, you know, in Victoria where we were gathered. It's a huge issue. There's many people who don't have a family doctor. So, you know, when you're struggling to get people to live in a city like Victoria, mm. you know, this is a big, big issue. Um, so, so that part of the system, I think, is really broken. And that has huge implications for the rest of the healthcare system. Then you look at our acute care sector under huge pressures, also not coping. You know, again, daily stories about emergency department closures, reduced hours. And then for the departments that are still functioning, huge issues with staffing, massive backlogs, you know, people waiting 12, 24 hours to be seen. Hmm. The ongoing hallway medicine and admitted patients, often elderly people, you know, lying on gurneys for days when they need to be hospitalized. I mean, this is just to me, this is not the dignity that people deserve. You know, if you're an elder in this country and you are unwell enough to need to be hospitalized and you're lying on a stretcher in a hallway for three days, I I don't, to me, I, I just don't think that's acceptable. Um, and when then, of course, e- even in the community with, with our emergency medical services, huge issues, right? The, uh, you may have seen in the media the other day, a woman in Montreal, again, an elder, died on her deck waiting for paramedics with a broken leg. I mean, th- this is, to me, a, a catastrophic failure when we're not able to do basic things for people, like get them a family doctor, be seen in a timely way if you have an emergency, have an ambulance that's available to come to you if you're injured. I mean, these are the things that are, are falling apart. And, and, you know, we haven't even yet talked about the surgical backlogs or the backlogs in lab tests, diagnostic imaging, which have huge implications as well. So, you know, I, I think the bottom line is right now, is there an aspect of the healthcare system that's actually functioning well? And, and it, to me, it, it doesn't really seem that there is. So, you know, we, we talked about uh, about patients. You've talked about um, uh, us, just society, patients that are, are waiting for these services. But from the perspective of the healthcare practitioners, this has got to be unbelievably stressful. What are you hearing on the ground from the practitioners, from the uh, doctors, from the whole healthcare field? Oh, uh, this is a huge issue. And, you know, I think we've heard a lot about burnout in healthcare professionals, right? That it's doubled during the pandemic in physicians and nurses. It's at an all-time high. But I think what's really important for people to understand is why are people burnt out? It is from the trauma of working in a broken system and not being able to provide care for patients. You know, 
People go into healthcare because they want to look after people. They want to help. And when you're in the role and the system is such that you can no longer do that or do so safely, it is very, very difficult. And that drives burnout and then moral injury when people feel they're failing their patients. And and every day, that's what I'm hearing from colleagues. They feel that they cannot get patients what they need. And the other piece of that is often to get patients what they need, they need to constantly be going above and beyond and circumventing the system to try to help people. You know, we should have systems that enable quality care. We should not have to do workarounds or go, you know, do special things to get people basic health care. But that's what all of us are dealing with. Um, And to me, that's so heartbreaking because these are incredible people. These are compassionate people. They're dedicated. They want to be in service of others. They want to give Canadians excellent care. And we have excellent healthcare providers in this country. You know, the standard for doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, all, you know, all the healthcare professionals is extremely high. And they're just not able to use their skills because of this system's issues. And, And that, to me, is really heartbreaking. Absolutely. You know, the thing is, this is not a new conversation, the need to shore up our healthcare system. Uh, It's been on the minds of Canadians, of politicians, um, of every political stripe and healthcare workers for years now. But like this is now feels a little bit more like a tipping point. You've said that this is on, we are on the brink of collapse. So I, I just wonder about the things that have changed over the years to bring us to this point. Oh, I I totally agree with you. You know, this has been a conversation for literally decades. You know, that's the reality of it. Um, And I think we find ourselves where we are today because all it's been for decades is a conversation, right? People have been talking about things. There has not been a lot of substantial action. There's been tinkering around the edges. There's been pilot projects. There's, you know, certain hospitals that have been successful at streamlining things or certain communities that have, you know, done things differently and seen some successes. But the scope of that is not broad and we have not been able to scale those things to, you know, across the country. Um, And I think that's why we find ourselves where we are today. And then, you know, you add on top of that, of course, a pandemic, and, and I think that was just that final sort of pressure, right? You know, this, where we are now is not because of the pandemic, but I think it's pushed us to the brink because of that pandemic put this system that was really kind of being held together with duct tape right to the edge. Um, and the individuals in it, I, you know, I don't think people realize the amount of altruism that drives our system's ongoing functioning. And I think we're also coming to the end of that, right? We can no longer keep downloading these systems failures onto individuals. And and that's what's happened for a long time in the system. And now I think we've just come up against the wall where that people are just starting to walk away. Um, and, and that is really concerning, but, but I, also it is an opportunity, right? Now, at least there, the conversation starts, I think, starts to be penetrating somewhat. Even, you know, when you look at the premiers yesterday, some of the things they were saying, the language they were using, the acknowledgements we were starting to hear about, yes, some of these things need an integrated approach. They need a pan-Canadian lens. We recognize, yes, we need more dollars, but we have to get serious about transformation. Like we're starting to hear some of that percolate and come out of, of what our leaders are saying. And I, that was certainly what I was hearing in some of my conversations with the premiers. So I feel like, you know, the momentum is building, but now it's, we have to capitalize on it. And I think that's why it's so important that, right, that the federal government comes to the table now, right? Like mm. the time for action was 10 years ago, but it's really right now. Nothing is going to get better if we don't start doing something. And, and 
Of course, the most concerning piece is the longer it takes us to start acting, the more Canadians are going to suffer and in some cases lose their lives because the healthcare system is not working properly. So I just think the time for talking has passed. Like we need to get on with things. And uh, I really hope that we'll take advantage of this moment uh, and, and actually do that. And now we're also pressing up against, um, you mentioned COVID. We are talking about uh, another wave coming our way. I just, I just wonder how much worse the situation can get. Oh, I hear you. I mean, the bottom line is we are in a seventh wave. You know, case counts are going up. There's no question. There's a new variant uh, of Omicron. It's got, you know, it's got more immune escape than previous variants. It's highly contagious and and it's spreading through the population yet again. Um, and I don't think we know exactly what that's going to mean. I mean, there's some things that are in our favor. We do have a highly vaccinated population. However, many Canadians have not had that critical third dose of the COVID vaccine. And it's very clear that for protection against hospitalization and severe outcomes with Omicron, you need to have had three doses of the vaccine. So, you know, I think there's been a misunderstanding that two doses is fully vaccinated. It's not. So I worry about the vulnerability there. Um, And Exactly. You know, how many people are going to end up in hospital? How many people are going to end up with some disability following this wave yet again? And what does that mean for our ability to keep the system going and, you know, catch up, right? Like millions of backlog procedures. Mm-hmm. Every time the system is under stress, what happens? It's surgeries that get canceled, right? Because when your emergency department's overwhelmed and you have no staff, they cancel surgeries to bring those nurses into the emergency department, right? When the hospital's overwhelmed and full and there's nowhere to put people and you can't move people out into long-term care or home care, what happens? Surgeries are canceled because there's no beds to put patients in after they've had their operation. So, you know, every time we, we reach that state where we're not able to cope, all those people waiting keep waiting. Right. And there is immense suffering on that list, right? These are not fun little surgeries that people are doing for entertainment. I mean, these are serious things. And a lot of these people are disabled, living in chronic pain. They can't function. Some people are having their cancer surgeries delayed repeatedly. I mean, these are going to have serious implications for people's health. Um, So I I do worry. And and the other piece with COVID, I think that's really worrisome is we don't know what's around the corner, right? We hope that as over time, you know, the virus evolves and becomes less serious, but we don't know that's what's going to happen. It could also become more more deadly. We don't know. So there's a lot of uncertainty still in front of us. Um, and I think all the more reason we need to be shoring up our healthcare system now. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. In the last couple of years, it feels like everything has become politicized. Um, all of these conversations become politicized. Does it feel to you that politics is is still in play when we when you you witness these discussions at a meeting like we saw this week? Um, does it feel like there's still political gamesmanship 
at work here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is partly what's so frustrating, right? Is it, it seems so difficult to, to move past the po- political rhetoric and the finger pointing and the name calling. I mean, it just is part of that arena. I mean, I, and I understand that that's the reality of politics. But, but what I think is so fr- frustrating when it comes to healthcare is, you know, of course, there's politics in healthcare, but healthcare is an essential service that everybody needs. And I don't suspect most Canadians really care about the politics of healthcare. I suspect what most Canadians care about is are they going to get healthcare when they need it or their loved one or their friend, right? So to me, it, it's really an area where we need to, to move past political rhetoric. We need to move past the blame and shame, the finger pointing, scoring the political points. And we need to move to collaboration. You know, we're not going to solve this by making it highly political and arguing all the time. We're going to solve it by coming to the table together in a sincere way and being willing to admit that no one group of people got us here, right? This is not the work of one political party, one level of government. Every political party, every level of government had a role to play in where we are right now. So let's park that and let's look to the future and what needs to happen to make sure that our healthcare system is sustainable and equitable and available to Canadians. And, and I hope that we can see that type of leadership from our politicians to recognize the need for that, uh, because it is very frustrating when you see the amount of suffering and then you, you don't necessarily feel like we're able to move past the politics to, to actually get to solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And we should, we really do need to, um, to talk about solutions. Um, so you, you touched on the fact that we do have a shortage of family doctors and that family medicine is the backbone of a robust healthcare system. Uh, can you elaborate on that idea and, and just give us a sense of, of the state of family medicine right now and where we need to be? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the evidence shows that when people have a longitudinal family doctor who knows them well, their health outcomes are better and the expenditures in the system as a whole for their health are less. So from an investment perspective, it's the best, one of the best value things in our healthcare system. And our whole healthcare system is designed around the idea that everyone has a primary care provider. And that person's, you know, you can kind of think of them like the quarterback of your care, right? They know you, often they know your whole family, they know your community, they know you over time, and they help you make decisions about your health. They help navigate when you need other specialist care procedures or diagnostic imaging, et cetera. And then when you've seen those people, they help pull it all together and make a plan going forward, right? So they they really have that core role. Well, all of a sudden, when you don't have that and 5 million Canadians don't have that, there isn't really anyone who can step in to fill that void. And in our system, what ends up happening often is that void is filled by emergency departments, walking clinics, like episodic care. Well, those places are not designed to do that type of care. So of course, you're not going to see the the outcomes that you would see if you had an actual family physician. So I think, you know, the concern is the way family medicine is set up was really designed in the 60s when, you know, people lived much shorter lives. Medicine was much less complex. We did not see the mental health challenges that we're seeing in our population right now. And the population, you know, of course, was younger and and there wasn't as many aging Canadians with complexity. Medical science, of course, has become so much more sophisticated in that timeline. We're able to do so much more for people, which is great. 
But what that means is caring for patients has gotten a lot more complicated, but the system hasn't really changed to account for that. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we're not retaining people in family medicine. We're, we're training actually a lot of people in family medicine. We could be training more because again, you know, a family doctor in 1970 maybe could have looked after 5,000 people or 4,000 people in a panel. Well, that's just almost impossible now with the complexity of people. So the reality is it's no longer kind of a one-for-one replacement because of people's needs, right? So absolutely, we likely need more people to do the work. But the reality is even those we're training now are not necessarily practicing longitudinal family medicine. In fact, just a few weeks ago, a report came out of BC showing that only 50% of their family doctors are actually practicing longitudinal family medicine. Why is that? It's because the system doesn't work, right? So that when you're, so you have to imagine this, right? Now you're a family doctor. You're, let's take BC as an example. You go to your clinic, right? So in the last 20 years, your fee code for seeing a patient has increased by $6. $6. So now you're being paid $31 to see a patient. In the meantime, you can imagine, like, what do you think's happened to the infrastructure costs, which you pay for as a physician in the last 20 years? Right. Well, it's gone up by a lot more than that, right? And right now we're in, a, in an inflationary environment. Of course, you know, cost of living's increased. So you can't, you know, what it costs to have staff, to pay your rent, your internet. Now we have EMRs, you know, physicians, they pay for all of that out of their billings. It's, it's become so disproportionate that people just can't make it work. And in the meantime, other things have gotten worse, right? The administrative burden of medicine, uh, you know, electronic medical records supposed to make people's lives better. All the evidence shows they increase the amount of time doing paperwork. So again, why do you go into medicine? You want to care for people. You want to spend time with your patients. You want to be engaged when they come in. Now, what are people doing, right? They're typing away on their EMR. They're managing the flood of inboxes, all the results flowing in, the forms that need to be filled out, this insurance form, that insurance form. And at the end of the day, they're going home and they often have three, four, five, six hours of paperwork to do after a full day of work, none of which is paid for in our current system. Um, And the patients have more complexity. And because we don't have other supports, you know, we don't have integrated team-based care. So for example, say I have a patient with obesity and, and they want to do something about their health. Well, what are they going to need? They're going to need a team, right? They're going to maybe need a therapist or a counselor to help them around their eating habits and what's going on there for them personally. They might need a nutritionist, a physio, someone to help them with an exercise plan, then support that lifestyle change, which is complicated. Well, none of those things are available in our publicly funded system. So now you as the family doctor in your 10 minutes or 15 minutes, are supposed to do all of that? Well, it's not possible, right? So so again, as you can imagine, you start to feel this sense of moral injury and distress because you know you can't give people the things they need and the tools that they need aren't available to you. Um, and because you're the only thing in the system, aside from hospitals, that's actually covered, all these other team members that could really help your patient aren't necessarily available. So so that drives that burnout and that loss of satisfaction in the work. So then people choose other things, right? They become a hospitalist where they can just go work in a hospital. They don't have the infrastructure costs. They don't have the administrative piece. Um, And then they are like, okay, this is better. Or they choose maybe a specialized area of family medicine like palliative care, Mm. addictions medicine or something, right, where it's more... There's more control around it. And, and what we're seeing is we're seeing that loss of that true generalist because we're not supporting them to do the work. It's not that they don't want to do the work, but they're not supported to do it. And the irony is when they're training to be family doctors, most of the training programs take place in some of the few, you know, integrated care models that are out there because they, they do exist. They just haven't been scaled. So we're trained people like that. 
And then when they come out, they can't work in that environment. So it's there's just so many disconnects. Mm. Um, and again, it, it's it's really heartbreaking. And I think we, we are really starting to hear our family physicians speak out about this because they see that we're losing primary care. They know the value they bring to the to the country with their work. Sure. And, and again, they see the burnout in their colleagues. And I think it's heartbreaking for them because they know there's high value there, but we're just not putting in place the transformation and the supports to make that style of medicine practical. And therefore, we don't see the retention. If there was three recommendations that you could, that you could implement right now to shift the tides of this, of this co- collapse, this calamity that we find ourselves in, what might those be? Well, there's many, but if I had to pick three, I would say absolutely, you know, getting serious about fixing primary care. And that means listening to family physicians about what's needed to transform the system to make primary care sustainable again. That that has to happen because the implications of not having a functioning primary care system are, are profound. So I think that's a key priority. We have a major health human resource crisis in Canada um, and that's because of poor planning. That's not going to be easily resolved overnight, but we need to create an integrated human health resource plan for the country. It needs to be pan-Canadian. It needs to encompass health professionals. And we need to use that to look at the resources that are needed to train new professionals and look at how we retain the people we have. And we need to take that broad lens because if we don't start fixing that, we're going to lose more people from the system and we're going to be in big trouble. So we need to really figure that out. And I think if we saw a commitment to that, it would also go a long way in terms of retaining healthcare professionals because they'd feel some sense of hope that things are going to get better. So I think that's really important. Another, I think potentially low-hanging fruit that, you know, in the short term could provide some relief is decreasing regulatory barriers to workforce mobility, meaning national licensure. You know, so right now, all healthcare professionals are licensed in their individual province and territory. That really limits health workforce mobility, which is a real issue, especially in rural parts of the country. That affects recruitment and retention because you move to those places and you have no idea if anyone's ever coming to help you or give you a day off. Mm. Um, And it's challenging to pivot staff because you know, you have to get apply and get a whole license, even if you maybe were going to go for a week just to give someone a break. So if we could change that, create a pan-Canadian license, we then would have the opportunity for more mobility. That could take some of the pressure off. We could pivot to places that are really under duress, and that would be helpful. And it would allow us to look differently at virtual care, right? Because virtual care is, is newer, we're doing it, but we haven't fully tapped into that potential of that for access to care. And especially for things like access to specialist consultation, et cetera, Virtual care, if it could be pan-Canadian, could really change access because you may have areas of the country where there's specialist waits are shorter and you could have them then seeing people from other parts of the country. But right now you can't provide that type of care across borders. So I think that would be a short-term piece that could allow us just some more flexibility while we're starting to kind of work on some of the bigger challenges. So the the, the premiers uh, over the last week... Um, there's a lot of grappling about money, about dollars, about what the this uh, an, an influx from the federal government would do to change that. And when you talk about those top uh, those those three um, uh, recommendations that you would make right now, is what the premier's asking for dollars wise? Is that enough to actually change the the conversation and and be able to implement some of those changes that you talked about just now? 
Well, some of the things we're talking about aren't very expensive, right? Exactly. Like creating yeah. an integrated health workforce plan. Sure, that's going to cost some money, but this is not in the billions, right? This is not a really expensive thing. Same with the national licensure. I mean, for sure, there's going to be some cost to bringing regulatory bodies together and figuring out how to do that. But this is, you know, not, again, not a massive expenditure. So I think those two things are would be large bang for your buck. You know, changing primary care for sure is going to require more significant investment. If you really want to move to integrated team-based care, if you want to have the government start to support some of the infrastructure costs of community care, that's going to require some investment. But, you know, I think it's hard to know, you know, what's the right dollar amount because we don't really track the data. We don't have a lot of accountability in the system. There's not a lot of outcome-driven decision-making. You know, how much does it need to cost? I'm not really sure anyone knows the answer to that because we aren't really looking at it from that lens per se, right? Mm. The reality is we spend a lot of money on healthcare as it is, but we're, we're not seeing the outcomes we should be seeing for the investment we're making. So could we invest more in public healthcare? Absolutely. There's all sorts of areas that we aren't invested in. And actually 30% of dollars spent on health in Canada are actually spent privately by patients. Only mm. 70% of the costs are actually funded by the government. Um, so there is absolutely, I think, a role for more investment from the government's governments, I say, in, in health. However, I think when you already know you're getting a poor return on the investments you've already made, because we have literally one of the lowest performing healthcare systems for similar countries, only above the United States in terms of performance, and we're one of the higher spenders, um, not the highest, but one of the higher ones, and that's actually the amount of money we've spent has gone up significantly during the pandemic. So, so right there you go, there's a fundamental problem here that isn't only about money, right? So right. I think we need to be making sure that we're seeing that we're seeing reasonable outcomes from the investments we're making and that we are understanding what's working and what's not. So when we make further investments, which I also think we should do, we're seeing a return on those. And that return mm -hmm. should mean high quality, accessible care for Canadians. Mm -hmm. And right now we're not doing that. So I think you know, to me, this really has to be a conversation that's happening in parallel. It has to be about the funding, but it also has to be about systems transformation and how we can generate a more accountable and outcomes-orientated system to create value, because that's what we need to do to make a sustainable and equitable system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so coming out of this meeting this week, uh, what would seem to be a, a productive first step towards a more efficient an effective healthcare system? Like what will you be looking for in the coming months post-meeting? I think what we really need to see now is the federal government and the, and the provinces to come together and meet, um, create the meeting and lay out the agenda with a plan, right? So they need to sit at the table together. They need to agree to collaborate. And I think they need to create a short-term, a medium, and a long-term plan. And we've already heard, you know, different priorities, some of which I've talked about. Other priority areas, of course, are mental health, addictions, um, things like long-term care, home care need more rethinking, revamping, uh, addressing the surgical backlog. So I think we're all, you know, generally on the same page about priorities. But now it's a matter of mapping out the roadmap to achieve those things. And I think the next step has to be the provinces and the federal government at the table creating that roadmap, agreeing to it, and then looking at what the resources are going to be, right? Okay, now we've decided this is where we're headed. What are we going to do? How are we going to deploy the resources we already have and new resources to get there? And then once that was mapped out, now we've created accountability, right? We've set a goal. We've decided a timeline. We've set, chosen some areas of priority. And now we can start doing the work. Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Dr. Catherine Smart is a pediatrician and the president of the Canadian Medical Association. That was the big story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Talk to us anytime via email. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, you can call us 416-935-5935. Now, if you are able to review this podcast, that would be great. We'd like that. It'd be really nice to hear from you. I'm Garvey Bailey. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.